You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg cott i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show Jim and I welcome Canada's indie rock supergroup, The New Pornographers. And Greg and I will review the new albums by Chris Brown and Damon and Naomi. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Alors voilà, Clyde a une petite amie. Elle est belle et son prénom c'est... Bonnie. A eux deux, ils forment le gang Barrow. This week, Jim, the big news is very troubling, I think, because the war against Internet file-sharing piracy has taken another step up. We've got one of the major governments of the world, France, <laughs> has thrown their weight behind uh, the anti-piracy campaign. They've basically said they have gone into an agreement with Internet companies, record companies, filmmakers to uh, shut down file sharing. They have created an anti-piracy body that is going to basically hunt down who's ever downloading music or movies illegally in France. And if they are caught doing this, they're going to shut them down, basically take away all their access to the Internet. I think this is a troubling idea, Jim, because what we've seen so far is these individual corporations going after the consumers, uh, their trade bodies. Now we've got the government involved in France. You know, it's a huge step to say now that France has done it, the United States may end up doing it. But I have to say, it is not a good trend. Clearly, this is the, the trend that the content producers, the major labels, would like to see. Have the government be their cop in policing downloading. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, the parallel to this is what's happening in, in America with the recording industry uh, going to the universities and actually having the universities do their bidding on this. Oh, absolutely. It, it, so far to date, the Recording Industry Association of America, the trade group of the five major labels, has sent out more than 4,000 threatening letters, uh, threatening lawsuits and, and extorting settlements from people who downloaded music at the universities across the country. These have included, you know, a lot of schools, Ohio State University, University of Texas, DePaul University here in Chicago. Until recently, though, like the 10th wave of these lawsuit letters, uh, it hasn't really focused on the Ivy Leagues. Now, in a big way, Yale, Princeton, they're all being sucked into this, all except for one university that is notably absent from the list, and that is Harvard. So, Ten waves of, of lawsuit letters from the RIAA. The, the one college they haven't gone after yet is Harvard. Why? Well, they say, you know, they say, well, we're, we're just going after people as, as we become aware of it, you know. But Harvard has lately been doing a couple of articles about it. They believe that the RIAA is afraid of Harvard because the university, unlike the other colleges, 
may not pass on those letters to the students because mm. remember, you know, the 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 letter goes to the university and they don't necessarily know who is the owner of that IP address. Right. It's just some computer from this university was downloading music and a lot of those universities have then passed on those letters to the students regardless of the fact that maybe they were downloading music as part of a research project. Right. Isn't that what you're supposed to do at a university? Forget that. So Harvard may not pass on the letter and also the Harvard Law School is in a big way against this whole notion. They think that this is a, a violation. The copyright laws are being uh, read the wrong way. So there's some of the best and brightest legal minds in the country in terms of the professors and the students may well just be itching for an excuse to fight the RIAA. Yeah, and these pre- pre-litigation letters are basically shakedowns. They're basically saying, pay us $3,000, pay us $4,000, we'll go away. We're going to take away your file sharing. You're going to give us $3,000. It's all good. There's no trial. So most of the universities in the country are participating in this program. It looks like Harvard may be putting up some resistance. There's a footnote here, Jim, with uh, the trade group that is representing this lawsuit campaign, uh, the Recording yeah, the Industry Association of America. Well, the reason they've had all this clout, it's like the five big mob families out in New York and New Jersey. You know, now, now they're, you know, they're a mere shadow of what they once were, the Sopranos aside. The RIAA has been uh, increasingly hurt in terms of its clout because the big Labels are hurting. They're not selling what they used to sell. And now EMI, one of the world's largest record companies, is apparently threatening to cut its funding to the RIAA. Apparently, each of the big five labels give more than $132 million a year to this organization to do things like sue its own customers, <laughs> right? And now EMI is saying, we, you know, we're not so sure. Now that it's been bought out by this terra firma group for yeah. 2.4 billion pounds or almost $5 billion, uh, they're saying, you know, I, I don't know if this is worth the money. Why yeah. are we part of this group? Yeah. And then, you know, the funding goes away, the RIAA goes away, and then do these lawsuits go away? Was nobody left to file them, right? <laughs> Exactly. Sprung from cages on Highway 9, chrome wheel, human checker, and stepping out over the line. Oh, baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. We gotta get out while we're young. Cause trance like us, baby, we were born to Big story in the uh, concert business this week, Jim, is that uh, C3 Presents, the Texas-based company that brought Lollapalooza to Chicago and the Austin City Limits Festival to Austin, Texas, is going to stage a huge festival in the Northeast beginning next summer. The Vineland Music Festival in South New Jersey on a 550-acre farm. They're doing it in tandem with a European promoter, Festival Republic, that has done big festivals like Glastonbury and Reading. So you're combining two huge forces in uh, the concert promotion game to do this big festival in the Northeast. The sidelight to this is that uh, C3 Presents was trying to do this festival in uh, Philadelphia. Yeah, downtown Philly, right in the big park. And a local promoter there didn't like what was going on. Sought to block that action, and uh, C3 ended up moving its game to South Jersey. You know, why this is of interest, Greg, is, as we've said a couple times on the show, the entire summer concert industry, which is really when the concert industry makes the bulk of its money every year, is is changing in a dramatic way. And I don't think it's for the better. What you're seeing is a new model based on Coachella and Bonnaroo and the C3 festivals, Austin City Limits and Lollapalooza, where, you know, regions of the country, 
sliced up, this corner, that corner, are each getting this big, massive festival, three days with 150 bands, and then the whole rest of the summer, because all these festivals have exclusivity agreements, even though the same acts are playing all the same festivals, Mm -hmm. right? The acts can't then come back to that market and play a smaller club, which is a preferable way to see them. You're getting the entire concert industry dominated by these festivals. If you don't feel like standing in the sun for three days and seeing 150 bands, would rather go see one good band in one nice venue... You're losing the opportunity. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jim. We've talked about the fact last summer already that there is a glut of these festivals. There might be too many of them. And it's getting to the point where you can't differentiate one festival from the next. No, they're all the same. And in fact, Charlie Jones, one of the principals of C3, said there's going to be some overlap between the headliners of Lollapalooza in Chicago on the weekend of August 1 through 3 and this violent festival August 8 through 10. It's just another big festival in another part of the country. But in terms of the individuality, the the type of tone it's going to set, the type of acts it's going to present, it's basically the same festival. Well, there's really not much difference between Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits at this point in time. I'm surprised they're not calling the uh, South Jersey Festival Lollapalooza. You know, they bought that name and made a big deal about how much the brand was worth in this new era of corporate concert. But I think that they realized there'd be a backlash if they suddenly had two Lollapaloozas. My other thought on this, Greg, is clearly this model is coming from Europe, where you've had giant festivals like Reading, Glastonbury, Leeds. There was just an item in the European press a day or two ago where the major beer company that sponsors two of those giant festivals has pulled out and decided it's no longer worth their company. So we're already seeing the waning of the giant European festivals. Now America's trying to copy that. I think they're a little bit behind the ball. That may be why Festival Republic is trying to break into the American market with this violent (laughs) festival. And, Jim, another thing. Jones says it's not over yet. He sees another seven or eight festivals popping up in the next year or two. He says, yes, we have definitely hit saturation point. There is overload. Not all of these festivals will be here in five years. May the best festival win. But I think it's a bad trend. Seven or eight more festivals. Do we really need that many destination festivals in the United States when we've already got that many now? No, and I humbly submit that if the best festival is going to win, it's not going to be C3 because to me it's been the Walmartization of the summer concert experience. Under your wheels, the hope of spring Mirage of loss, a few more things You left your sorrow dangling It hangs in air like a school cheer From black notes inside the chords On every wall, inflections carved Deepest lakes and darkest stars Remember we were the volunteers You are listening to Sound Opinions, and you're also listening to My Rights Versus Yours, a track from the New Pornographers, a band we were pleased to interview a few weeks ago when they stopped by the Jim and Kay Maybe studio. The band was without two of its members, uh, Dan Behar and Nico Case, when they stopped in. But the rest of the band was there. Carl Newman, the primary singer and songwriter, as well as Catherine Calder, John Collins, Kurt Dahl, and Todd Fancy. Same thing as the other time. 
Thank you guys for coming down. Carl, let's talk a little bit about how this band works. I've interviewed you a number of times. That we've interviewed Nico. I've talked to Dan Behar. Uh, I still don't have a clear idea of, of how... You got Dan Behar to do an interview? Well, you know, when he had his, the Destroyer record. Oh. Did, did a smattering of press. And there must have been somebody holding a gun to his head at Merge <laughs> Records. It wasn't necessarily a, like uh, Mac. Mac. a revealing interview. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this phrase, supergroup, gets tossed at it all the time. It's the hoariest, tiredest cliche in the world. Everybody in this room is in different bands, right, as well as this one. You make music under numerous guises. My understanding is you're a bunch of friends who come together once in a while to make records together. Yeah, pretty much. The whole pornographer thing has kind of gotten out of hand in its way. I mean, we honestly didn't plan to become popular. And so we've just been trying to figure out how to be a band for like seven years now. Mm. So far, so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the band formed in uh, 97 in Vancouver. You've put out four studio records. You, you said it was just as casual as just getting your, your friends together in, in 97, Carl. I mean, was there sort of a vision? Because obviously pretty sophisticated pop songs that you're writing here, you couldn't just get anybody to play these songs. It's not like a three-chord punk band uh, kind of approach. You, it was obviously, there was a little bit more ambition, it seemed to be, even at that point. Yeah, I think there was some musical ambition there, but that was the only kind of ambition, really. I was really kind of frustrated with my old band, and I wanted to do something else. My old band's on Pano. We hadn't even broken up yet, but I, I, was, I already jumped ship. Hmm. It, was, it was like starting to date somebody else before you've broken up with your <laughs> old girlfriend. Now, was that because of the limitations of the band in terms of what they could do musically, or what were the reasons that you wanted to do something different? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, sometimes bands suck. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I guess what I'm getting at was this sort of like a Jimmy Page thing, you know, where uh, you know I'm going to get the best drummer and the best singer and the best bass player keyboards that I can find and make this kind of pretty much amazing band, <laughs> kind of Vancouver's answer to that sort of. Yeah, pretty much. I think <laughs> I'm still kind of shocked at how good we became. Actually, it's because uh, I don't think we were very good at the beginning, mm-hmm. but we tried and we got better. Well, let's have a song before we uh, get much further into this. Want to do all the old showstoppers? Okay. One, two, three, four. When Tony saw the numbers he lied, made up the whole thing, failed when he tried. To cash in on his cautious new fame, always the numbers. All the 
Pornographers, all the old showstoppers from uh, their fourth album, uh, Challengers. Great stuff. Thank you, guys. Thank you. In the stripped-down acoustic pornography mode. That's where we're moving. <laughs> Are you? It's easier to carry, right? Yes, it is. Acoustic <laughs> instruments. I'm really getting tired of being a rock band. Yeah, all those Marshall stacks. Uh... <laughs> I took a plane, I took a train. Ah, who cares? You always end up in the city. I said to call, look up for one and see just how the sun sets in the sky. I said to John, do you think the girls here ever wonder how they got so pretty? Oh, well, I do. Look out upon the Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, more with the new pornographers. All the boys with their homemade microphones have very interesting sounds. All the girls falling to ruin, dropping out of school, breaking daddy's heart just to hang around. To the local record store and asked for an American music anthology. It sounds fun. They tore off my skirt and stuck it on the walls at PS1. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Let's continue our discussion with the new pornographers. All right, you, you were describing a fairly casual process of the band coming together in Vancouver. But with Twin Cinema in 2005, you guys reached the largest audience of your career, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that record got a lot of attention. It made the Billboard charts, for goodness sake, albeit at like 40 or something. Hey, we, we went up 10 on this record. There you go. Well, that's we, what I'm saying. There, we there we ex- hit 34. There are suddenly expectations of this casual uh, group of friends making indie rock records. Yeah, so people there are. are looking at the band. Yeah, expectations are both but that's what we have now. How do you keep that away from the recording studio when the group gets together? You just, you just have to, you know. We basically got where we are just by doing what we felt like doing. To suddenly change that and start chasing some kind of success... We have no idea what's going to make us successful, so you just continue and do what you do. But when we had the Arcade Fire in here, you know, they tried to keep it away from the studio, too, when they were recording. But there were just, there suddenly become practical concerns. There have to be, like, 300,000 CDs shipped in the first week, and it takes time to, like, book the pressing plant, you know, and all that stuff that you never thought about when you're just selling CDs out of the back of the van. They actually concern themselves <laughs> well, well, you with know, those things? Merge Records thoughtfully explained to them that, like, it takes, like, a long time to make. 300,000 CDs and so you have to give us some idea when this record might be done guys Mm -hmm. so it can't quite be as casual as it was I mean you're you're playing fairly large venues selling out multiple nights and cities on this joint you played a couple of big festivals here Mm -hmm. in Chicago and elsewhere gets to become more of an ordeal or or, or an endeavor yes it's an endeavor (laughs) slash ordeal Let, let's talk a little bit about the songwriting in this band, Carl, because uh, obviously you can you, you write plenty of songs. Uh, Nico Case is a songwriter who actually doesn't contribute a lot of songs to this band. No, uh, actually she doesn't at not all. Not at all. And uh, Dan Behar obviously contributes. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of balance that? Does Dan just bring songs that he thinks are going to be suited for this band and present them to you, or does he offer you a bunch of songs and you pick out the ones? How does, how does it work with um, what songs actually end up on the record? When we first started, I had a... I had an hour-long demo. The tape. The tape. <laughs> There's been a few of those tapes where uh, I just cherry-picked songs that I liked, like Wild Homes and Execution Day and Breaking the Law. I remember seeing him play a solo show in, like, 1999, and he did both Jackie and Testament to Youth and Verse. And mm-hmm. I remember walking up to him and going, we're going to take those. Those are, <laughs> those are, those are going to be uh, new pornographer songs. But after that, I would basically call him up and say, we need some songs. And he would send them. Like, like like ordering dinner. Yeah. And uh, about a month or two after I talked to him, he emailed me uh, Myriad Harbor and Entering White Cecilia. And I thought, these songs are awesome. And that that was pretty much it. There have been a few songs of his that he's given that which just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, um, a song that ended up on a Destroyer record called Painter in Your Pocket, mm-hmm. which I just thought sounded too much like Destroyer. I just mm-hmm. thought, what could we do with this? I couldn't figure out a way to make it sound like the new pornographers. So, mm-hmm. and that ended up being a great destroyer song. 
What about what about you personally? I mean, you make records as Carl Newman, mm-hmm. as well as with the New Pornographers, and you tour under that name and with a different band. What's a Carl Newman song versus a song you're going to give to New Pornographers? You know, at this point, I have no idea. Mm. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, but you had a very clear idea about whether that was a Destroyer song or a New Pornographer song. That's right. So yeah. you seem to have some kind of idea in your head about what a New Pornographer sound yeah, is. Yeah, but it's much easier for me to look at Destroyer objectively than it is for me to look at myself and go, what, what should go on my record? Mm. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually planning on spending all of the month of January just demoing songs, and I'm going to try and figure out. At the end of January, I should know what's a new pornographer song and what's a solo <laughs> song. That's my plan, at least. That's what my, about that's the, my other, hope. the other people in the band? Catherine, can you say to Carl or Dan, for that matter, well, I don't think that's a new pornographer song? Or how come you're not giving that one to the new pornographers? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever said that. No. It's I, not allowed. Not allowed. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, a, it'd be a serious breach of etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> So so between the lines, the casualness of the new pornographers isn't quite as casual as we were initially led to believe. (laughs) Yes. And following up on that, how do you decide Catherine sings, Nico sings, you sing, Dan sings? I mean, how does it it get divvied up Um, in terms of who's going to do what? Sometimes it's a little little bit like the way the Cars did it, how Rick Ocasek and Benjamin Orr to both sing lead and just figure out what works best. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's stuff that both, you know, Catherine and Nico sang and just figured out what worked the best essentially you'll have a bunch of people try a song sometimes and figure yeah. out who does or, it best. that's kind of how the uh, gang vocals end up on songs it's not all laid out you just have everybody sing like since you're here why don't you sing on this why don't you sing on this why don't you sing on this and mm-hmm. then pretty soon you have like the end of bleeding heart show which has like 10 people singing everybody. on it yeah not not, be- not because it was like any real intention to have it sound like that it was just a- when you add it all together it it sounds great Since you bring that song up, my favorite new pornographer song, by the way. I love, love that song. And uh, Thank you. Four part. I think it's four. There are four distinct parts in that song, right? It's, sort of, it's almost like a sweet yeah, kind of, of. And it's four minutes, four parts. I mean, it's this amazingly... You wrote a prog rock song, basically, but nobody knows that. You know, it's, it's yeah. this very complicated kind of song, well, but yet I, it sounds very seamless. I think I've always... Uh, you know that song, Rosecrans Boulevard, by uh, Jimmy Webb? <laughs> I've, <laughs> Which I, yeah, my first band right, covered right. it. Uh, I've always wanted to write a song like that. I just loved the way it was only three minutes long and just ever, ever expanding. Stop your calling me. You know, I never loved her anyway. I just used her. And constantly changing, but yet not in an annoying prog way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's this great, great song. But I think I've always been chasing that. Mm-hmm. Which, it's a dangerous thing to be chasing. Well, it's, it's a hard thing to do that, those kind of like little parts in, within a song and, and make it appear seamless. Like on the Yes albums, they always seem to announce, you know, 
this is going to be really difficult. We're playing in this <laughs> yeah. seventeen eight, and mm-hmm. and and it's going to be this, ama- you know. And you'll hear it, and it's really apparent. Well, there were lots of different things grafted together that didn't yeah. belong together. It was sort know? of like a Frankenstein kind of thing, but I, you I, have this ability to make it sort of seem seamless. I think that's the key. It, it's hard. It's hard to make it that seamless. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, is there a secret you can give away? But you know, how do you how do you manage that kind of thing without you know drawing attention to the fact that. This isn't a traditional pop song. There's four parts in it, and it's, it has these different movements going through it. I think as long as you put uh, three chords at the end and sing "Hey La Hey La," <laughs> people will just forgive whatever happened in the first three minutes. You know? It's true. It's true. You know, "Starship Trooper" by Yes works all because of that big guitar right, thing right. at the end. Yeah, I think I think you've hit on something. There's there. a lot of very easy tricks you can mm-hmm. put into to songs. Why don't you guys play us another tune and tell us what it's going to be? Okay, this one's called "Adventures in Solitude." One, two, three, four. Balancing on one wounded wing, circling the edge of the never ending. The best of the vanished marvels of gathered in. Inside your door Oh then begin But let's not forget Both spirits born From the not happened yet Gathering there To pay off a debt Brought back from the walls We thought we lost you
Beautiful song, Adventures in Solitude, from the new New Pornographers record called Challengers. Carl Newman singing with uh, Catherine Calder on that song, and uh, beautiful harmonies. A, a sort of a melancholy glow to that song. I, I remember when the uh, reviews of Twin Cinema came out in 2005, they go, wow, what happened to all the exuberant up-tempo songs? They're getting a little darker and a little moodier on this record, and uh, that's carried over into Challengers. So I'll, I'll put it to you, Carl. What uh, Do you feel like there's been a, a little bit of a shift in, in the way you've, you've been writing the songs and maybe sort of bringing in some of that? more melancholy stuff into the yeah, songwriting. Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody wants to keep putting out the same records over and over again. We could make another record that sounded just like Mass Romantic, mm-hmm. but I think it would make me feel very sad inside. Like, <laughs> I, I would feel like that was totally selling out. Not that there's anything wrong with making a record like that, but it's just that we already did it. You, you want to have a body of work that you feel like is somehow relevant. You look at all the good bands through history, they all changed, you know? Mm-hmm. The Beatles morphed into something very quickly that wasn't she loves you and I want to hold your hand and but both of them were great you look at Meet the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper and you go those are both awesome records that bear a little resemblance to each other and I think that's something to strive for in a band like I think you just have to like take risks basically well your standards are pretty high though I mean we've talked about this before where you know you, you talk about the kind of songwriters that you've admired and they're not the typical names that a lot of people in the so-called indie rock world drop I mean you're talking about you just talked mm-hmm. about Jimmy Webb and mm-hmm. you'd mentioned your admiration for people like Burt Backrack before yeah um, Brian Wilson where, where was uh, everybody loves Brian Wilson in well, indie rock that's true <laughs> but you don't you don't hear Burt Backrack mentioned too much where, where did that appreciation when did it start and why did it develop I'm you curious know, I remember that. very clearly when it started I think it was like spring of 1991 I bought the best of Dionne Warwick mm-hmm. and I was just floored how good it was like there were the songs that everybody knows but then there was other songs like I just don't know what to do with myself I just The entire CD, it really changed me, like no other CD. Like, Mm. I started doing some pano just because I wanted to be in a band that kind of sounded like Burt Bacharach, which was was totally overreaching, (laughs) and because we weren't capable of doing it, and also completely out of step with the times, because it was like 1991, but... She made it seem effortless. And you got to give Hal David a lot of credit, because those lyrics are great. Like, even the cheesy ones. Like, raindrops keep falling on my head. <laughs> yeah. Are there any better cheesy lyrics, <laughs> like, in the history of rock? That's pretty much as good as cheese gets. Yeah. Like, I wish I could write a line like, so I did me some talking to the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Said I didn't like the way he got things done, sleeping on the job. Like, that's, that's genius. For somebody who's willing to, like, walk to the edge of the precipice and look down on, like, cheesiness and yeah. go, I'm not yeah, afraid right. of you. Well, did he realize or not, though? It's a question of self-awareness. I already get mocked enough for that. I don't know why I even say these things out loud. (laughs) (laughs) We've been listening to the new pornographers here on Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Thank you so much all for coming down to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having us. Raindrops are falling on my head. To read more about today's show or to listen to the New Pornographer's bonus live track, visit soundopinions.org. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of Chris Brown and Damon and Naomi's latest. So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done 
be sleeping on the job Those raindrops are falling on my head And they keep falling But there's one thing I know The blues they send to greet me Won't defeat me It won't be long till happiness steps up Raindrops keep falling on my head But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red The cry is not for me Cause I'm never gonna stop the rain by complaining Because I'm free Nothing's worrying You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You heard it here first. Happy Boy Radio. We love That's Chris Brown with the number one single in the country called Kiss Kiss. His second album is just out. It's called Exclusive. Chris Brown, who is uh, all of 18 years old now, he's all grown up, debuted in 2005 when he was only 16 with a self-titled album, had a huge hit on it called Run It. He's a kid from uh, a small town in Virginia, Tappahannock, and filled that uh, void that Usher left behind. Yeah, Much- Usher takes so long between albums that, that Brown's entire career has happened since the last Usher record. Exactly. Much like Usher, who began his career when he was 14, Chris Brown began his career as a teenager. He's now on his second record. He's sold three million records so far. He's got the best producers money can buy on this record. It's a huge release for, for Jive Records, one of the biggest labels in the R&B field. And what Chris Brown has done is established a persona that's a little closer to that early Usher sound, that kind of innocent boy next door, more so than that lascivious, creepy guy down the street that R. Kelly has established. It's, it's very accessible to a younger audience, and that's who's buying Chris Brown's records. He wants to act all grown up on this record, though, Jim. You notice the difference in the album covers. Oh, yeah, the there's a lot record, more R. Kelly on this record. First record had that scowling kid on the cover, dressed in that B-boy outfit, on this cover, he's got the, the suit and tie on. He's got that suave, self-possessed cool in his face. He wants to present himself as a little bit older, a little bit more mature. Well, it's the same journey that you know Justin Timberlake has taken. Exactly, and he, and he wants to sell Justin Timberlake-type numbers. Let's see if the music holds up under that scrutiny. Here's a new track from the record called Hold Up from Chris Brown on Sound Opinions. Mine and sink, I knew she was mine. That day I sink, they got a big mouth bag on the line. It's time for me to retrieve her and go get her like a wide receiver. But we don't play no ball. See, when it comes to you, baby, girl, BB don't play at all. On the real, we need to nip this in the bud. Cause we kept it real with everyone. So tell me why they hating. Everybody's hating. It feels like they're just waiting for us to hard. It's just hard for me to do. But baby, if I'm your man, I guess I gotta be a man. This man just gotta understand. Little girl, we curves and hips, let's just lips. And I can't run now. I'm nervous. Hold up. Wait, wait a minute. 
genuine with it. I ain't tryna put no pimpin' in it. Hey. Like, oh, can I talk to her? Can I take her out? That's why I gotta tell you nowadays are so crazy out here. You wanna cut me if your daughter trusts with me. Lucky me, she be lucky too. No want to ride no proof. Just me riding with my boo. I got her, but don't think I'm replacing you. I know you know what I do, and I'm a major minor. It'll take days and days, decades to find another dude that's gone in my shoes and keep it one with you. Wait a minute, I'm genuine with it. I ain't tryna put no pimpin' in it. Like, can I talk to her? Can I take her out? That's why I gotta tell you now. That is Chris Brown with the song Hold Up from his second album exclusive. Greg, you nailed the formula. It's uh, partly the current cutting edge of very slick R&B, as personified by Usher at one extreme and R. Kelly at the other, extreme lyrically. I mean, musically, they have a lot in common. Uh, A little bit of hip-hop, a lot of pop, and uh, just a little hint, in Brown's case, of the go-go funk music that he grew up listening to outside of Washington, D.C., kind of a throwback to an older, more interesting sound. He made a big deal out of being more mature on this record. I think that that's fine. There's a little bit of of that kind of sexist uh, braggadocio and pandering, but there's a sweetness to this guy, and I think the reason we play it hold up is that it illustrates that. You know, he's talking to his girlfriend, you know, now, baby, please hang up the phone. I'm talking to your father. Mr. Jones, I've been talking to your daughter, and she likes me. She told me that she likes me, and I really like her. She's going to be my wifey. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of silly. It's really silly when you just isolate the lyrics, but there's an endearing kind of quality. I really like this record. I think it's a buy-it record. Well, I like this guy, too. I think the persona is interesting. I think the fact that he isn't quite as extreme as as Kelly is obviously uh, a, a bonus. The market needs that right now. The R&B market is desperate for that you type can't, of performer. You can't push the envelope any further in terms of sexual freakiness than yeah. Kelly already has. And, you know, it's a very smooth sound. The thing is, though, Jim, singers like Usher and singers like Chris Brown are a dime a dozen in R&B. Every male R&B singer worth his salt can hold a note, can stretch it out, can do those melismas, can do all the acrobatics. What really separates the men from the boys in this genre is the production. And on this record, I hear him biting a lot of well-honed formulas. Oh, yeah. Other people have done this sound better, including T-Pain. He's got T-Pain on this record. Everybody's got T-Pain on his record Yeah, with that vocoder, electronically processed uh, vocal tick That's that become does. a big cliche. That yeah. has become a cliche. It's the first single. It's selling because everything T-Pain has put out in the last year and a half has been selling. You've got Lil Wayne. You can't put out an R&B record without in Lil the Wayne. last year and a half without Lil Wayne doing a cameo. No, but see, I think you're Chris going down Brown's the... got this one, too. 
The thing is, Jim, even that song you just played, Hold Up, the chorus of that song, tell me that's not an R. Kelly song. What's well, a that playground chant is what it is. But you're going down the wrong R. road. I, I don't think R&B succeeds or fails on the strength of the producer. There's no I, originality here in the no, production. It it's not exciting as a production. Uh, it's it's about very much about formulas. It's about the charisma of this he's kid. He's got charisma, he's but he doesn't have any production. He's in This Christmas right now. He stole the show in, in Stomp the Yard. He's a movie star. Stole the show at the VMAs, the MTV Video Music Awards, with those dance moves. This guy's a star. He's been groomed to be one since age two. I think he's going to have a ton of hits on this record. Don't get me wrong. This is exactly what R&B wants right now. It's got all the proven formulas here. But I'm looking. Remember when Usher stepped up with that song? Yeah. I mean, I thought that was a really innovative sound. I thought that was Combining that with Lil Jon doing that sort of crunk thing, bringing it into his world. That's when Usher really stepped up as a distinctive artist. And I think Chris Brown is going to have the same trajectory. He's only on his second album. He's only 18 years old. I think by the time this kid's in his early to mid-20s, he's going to be making great records. So I said, this buy is not it. a great record. I said buy it, you're saying? I'm saying this is a burn it record. The truth I believed As I Greg, those are the lush and lovely sounds of the duo known as Damon and Naomi. That's Damon Krakowski and Naomi Yang. Husband and wife used to be the rhythm section of a band called Galaxy 500. Has uh, seen many imitators over the decade and a half since they broke up in the 91, I guess. Founders of the slowcore movement. Peaceful, droning, hypnotic, psychedelic rock. Uh, you've seen a lot of bands follow in that wake, including Luna, which Dean Wareham led. Damon and Naomi have been on their own ever since, and they have just released what is, I believe, their sixth studio album, Within These Walls. Um, this is a really interesting duo. They run a publishing company, and they run their own indie label, and every year and a half, two years, three years, they put out a really good record. I think Yola Tango gets all the attention for being the great husband and wife team of indie rock, Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley. I love them, don't get me wrong, but Damon and Naomi belong up there in the same realm, especially on the last couple of records where they've been collaborating with the great Japanese guitarist Michio Kurihara of the uh, psychedelic rock band Ghost. He's come in and added guitar to their gentle folk sounds, and, and they write beautiful songs, songs about relationships, songs about you know impressionistic views of the New England countryside, stuff that draws deep on poetry. Okay, what's different about this album? They've made it even a bigger sound, bringing in some saxophone, bringing in cello from uh, some of the members of, of that band Espers, which is a big part of the freak folk scene. Well, Damon and Naomi touch on that. They go deeper in a more old-fashioned way, something like Fairport Convention, maybe, incredible string band. They were listening to a lot of Frank Sinatra 
when they were trying to craft the sound on this album, they noticed that throughout his most productive years, the chairman of the board put out two albums a year, every year. One was the Happy album, and you could tell because he was smiling, and one was the Sad album, but they both had similar lush productions. They set out to try to replicate the sound, they've claimed, of a sad Frank Sinatra album. We'll talk about whether they succeeded or not after we play this tune. It's called The Well by Damon and Naomi on Sound Opinions. song called The Well from the new Damon and Naomi record, Within These Walls. Jim, you're absolutely right. They are uh, fleshing out their sound in a way that has not occurred before in their 15-year career. Their previous records all sounded like bedroom recordings, very intimate, but not particularly expansive. This record with the brass and with the string section, we've got them coming out into the world. It sounds like a chamber pop record instead of a bedroom record. Mm. I love the sound on that particular song that we just played, The Well. I think the addition of Kurahara, the guitarist, has been huge for this band, and I love the way his guitar curls around Naomi Yang's voice. It reminds me a lot of those really austere English folk records that Richard Thompson was doing with Sandy Denny and Fairport Convention. I love, I love, love, love that sound. The string and brass arrangements, I'm a little split on. I love the string sounds. I love most of the brass sounds. And i got to say, I respect Bob Rainey a great deal as a saxophonist. I've listened to a bunch of his records. He's a supremely gifted, avant-garde saxophone player. But there are moments on this record where I think, is this guy emulating Kenny G or something? I mean, the soprano soprano sax stuff is just a little sickly and a little too pretty.
I wish he'd sort of soured it up a little bit, made it a little bit more See, in keeping it, with that sort of eerie mood that this record but sets. But that's a contrast it's to the a fact that... It's a little too pretty. No, but Damon and, and Naomi it bothers me. are aware of the fact that they are true DIY underground musicians. Neither of them has particularly great voices. Neither of them are instrumental virtuosos. But they're creating this music. And I think that their amateurism plays well off of Rainey's uh, obvious accomplishment. I mean, this guy's a virtuoso, as you said, an underground great. Look, I don't think they've ever made a bad move. And I don't think that people are even aware of them. You know, certainly you should go back and buy the Galaxy 500 box set because that's a must-own, brilliant record. And I think that the half-dozen records that these two have made are, are way under the radar and deserve to be better known. They're all beautiful. I would give this one a buy it as I would virtually everything they've done. Well, you know, I'm not disagreeing with the buy it. I'll, I'll give it a buy it as well. You take that saxophone out of that out of this thing, and it'd be about a perfect record. There is well, a lot of, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of beauty on this record. I just have that one quibble. I got to say, every time I hear that soprano saxophone, wow. I I quit. I but cringe. but that's saying a lot. You're buying it anyway, despite the cheesy sax. It's beautiful. I mean, they, these they have exquisite taste. You're just Damon surly because of your cold. That's what taste. it is. No, I just hate soprano saxophone. All I right, guess unless right. Wayne Shorter's playing it. All right, all right, Greg. What do we got next week? Next week, Jim, we have, uh, I think, an extraordinary opportunity to interview Tori Amos, who is, as you well know, one of the most uh, eloquent musicians out there. And we had a chance to sit down with Tori in the Jim and K Maybe studio, and that interview will air next week. All right. We've got some thank yous to say, as always. Our uh, new pornographer's performance and interview was recorded by Sarah Toulouse and Mary Gaffney. And Sound Opinions is, as always, produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and our intern, Dave Mahler. With our executive producer, our fearless leader, our lover of cheesy soprano saxophone, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. messages. Yes, this is uh, Rich from Japan. I just listened to your talking about a study that relates to uh, file sharing increases purchases. These are the most ridiculous arguments. The fact is, uh, as an intellectual property lawyer, I have to say, stealing is stealing. This is the same argument that says uh, when legal immigrants come into America, they pay taxes and they work hard. Following an illegal act is a legal act is meaningless. The fact is, is that copying is stealing. When I was in college, we used to make tapes of albums that we made, uh, friends we knew, but that's different from putting music on the Internet for distribution so millions of people could copy it. And the fact is, is that the study is meaningless. And like I said, the fact that you follow an illegal act, copying, with a legal act does not make the first act legal. Anyway, my name is Rich, and that's it. Bye. There I was completely wasting out of working down All inside it's so frustrating as a dream town in town There's no nobody cares if I let one die So I might as well begin to put some action in my life Breaking the law
Thank you. My name is John Shepard. I'm calling from uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I just wanted to thank you for the uh, report on the University of London study on downloading. It uh, vindicated me, actually, on what I've been telling people since Napster was shut down in the uh, early part of uh, 2001, I guess it was, that uh, I've actually ended up purchasing more CDs from the things that I heard. And uh, hopefully the rest of the music industry will get wise to the fact that uh, file sharing and MP3s and, and downloadable samples are the wave of the future. And we'll see what happens. This will be an interesting trend to follow, but hopefully the, the big wigs will get wise to the, what we've been trying to tell people since the beginning. Thank you so much for your show. Hey guys, this is Lisa calling from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And Jim, I just wanted to call and let you know that this past week you finally restored my faith in your Desert Island jukebox, because before then I probably would have taken my chances with the Sharks rather than spend the rest of my days with the likes of Portishead and Rush and ugh. But Only Shallow is hands down one of the best songs of all time. I almost called it in when you did the best lead-off track show, but didn't get to it, but I just remember being 10 years old and sneaking into my older sister's room when she wasn't home and secretly sampling her CD collection. And the day I put on Loveless, it was like one of those cartoons where the person's eyelids snap up and spin around like window shades during the opening notes of Only Shallow. I think it's uh, maybe a little too much for a 10-year-old's mind to handle, but... Wanted to thank you so much for a fabulous pick and look forward to more selections that I would, you know, choose above a gruesome mauling death. So thanks a lot. Bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.